Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, everyone. Um, before we get started with today's episode, uh, we'd like to just give you a quick content warning. We will be discussing experiences and instances of sexual violence. Um, so please proceed with mindfulness and caution around that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Rachel. And I'm Mohini. I'm Emily. And we are here to talk about how the Me Too movement has manifested in the workplace and is starting to change and transform what is considered acceptable behavior and what is not. So we have a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Um, in fact, I don't know if everything that we have to say can fit into one hour. But we will see. It's a start. Got to start someplace. So we figured the most important thing to do first and foremost was to discuss what the Me Too movement means, what it encompasses, and what it means to us personally. Initially, when all this started blowing up on social media, because that's really, it started out as a hashtag. And from the research that I did, the actress Alyssa Milano was the first person to put it forward, but quickly realized that it had been a hashtag, I think, starting in 2006, I'm but it never gained sure. traction um, until now. And it was initially proposed by, was it Tarana Burke? I think so, yeah. That's right. So Alyssa Milano, once she found that out, which I think was the next day, she you know, quickly gave the recognition that was deserved to Tarana Burke and I think they were like on Good Morning America the next day or something together but initially it was supposed to be kind of an awareness raising hashtag about the scope of this problem but the problem wasn't entirely clearly defined it was mostly about harassment and just any sort of grievance in was it even in the workplace initially or was it I mean I I personally when I first saw it and was reading some of the stories saw it more as women trying to say I have also been harassed so mm -hmm. me too I have been harassed and that's kind of where I thought it started um and then yeah. I think it it got more broad yes as time went on <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, Me Too to me is so interesting, right? Because when you when you try to define it in its most literal sense, it's a hashtag. Mm -hmm. It's a hashtag that has led to this like really massive, you know, awareness campaign almost. And, you know, I, I hesitate to call it a movement because to me, coming from my political background, you know, like a mass movement is like a lot of people collectively coming together with a shared vision, shared goals, and a strategy to actually accomplish those things. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think Me Too isn't some sort of like massive awareness moment that isn't having a huge impact and a very important one. Maybe if we could capitalize, I, I 
abhor the term capitalize, but I just used it. Oh, well, um, if we could, if we could utilize the momentum that we've yes, got, here yes. we go. That's a good word. It could become a movement, but anyway, yeah, continue. Def- definitely. And, and, you know, I, I think that's t- certainly the direction that like, I hope that a lot of us like coming together can move it towards. But I had a very experience, uh, a very similar experience to Emily, where like I first started hearing about it as like street harassment and catcalling and other forms of harassment and like difficulties and even like dating and on online Mm -hmm. dating sites and like et cetera, et cetera. And I think it was when, you know, actresses like Selma Hayek Mm -hmm. came forward about Harvey Weinstein. That's when I that's when I saw the dialogue really shift about sexual assault and sexual harassment being a very prominent tool for like men to abuse professional power. Yeah. Um, And that's when I really started hearing like the majority of the conversation shift to that context of like abuses of power in a way that like really destroy and mess with women's lives and their Mm -hmm. careers. I don't know if that's the actual trajectory of, (laughs) of like the hashtag, but like that's how I experienced it. That sounds about right for me, too, because yeah. when it first began... For me, too. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I work at the hospital, and I had a patient ask me, in all sincerity, whether I had been harassed, because he was really appalled by this whole thing and really, you know, taken by surprise. And I, I couldn't help it. I just burst out laughing. And I said, I don't know a single woman who hasn't been harassed. Yeah. You know, beyond a certain age, it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I was doing a little research to try and prepare for this episode. And I guess like 12 million women have used the hashtag MeToo approximately. And I can't remember when that article was from, but it was fairly recent within the past several months. But I was kind of like... We have way more than 12 million women, Mm -hmm. and I think way more than 12 million women are accessing social media. I know that I never actually used the hashtag online because I wasn't entirely sure where I fit into this whole thing and where it was going and whether I wanted to associate it if it wasn't, if, if I felt like we need to address the roots of these problems more. But the solidarity building aspect of this, I think, is really important. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot more that I think we can do because, yeah, if it's not reaching everybody who's been affected. And I think bringing up solidarity is important because, as we've sort of already mentioned, Mohini and I saw it as something that was like personal. I've been catcalled or I've, you know, had some guy harass me at a bar. I have been harassed, me too. And for me, at least, it felt like once it shifted to the Harvey Weinstein story Mm -hmm. and then, you know, Bill Cosby had already kind of been going on for a while. I feel like before me too, like really hit its peak, but it almost felt like it took solidarity away from like us little people that aren't Mm -hmm. in Hollywood in a way. It almost seemed like women who are working in acting and movies and music too, like Kesha and all those people who shared those stories, they almost feel like they're a separate entity from us Hmm. who us non-famous people. Right. (laughs) 
So it was like dividing the solidarity almost, even though... A little bit, yeah. yeah. Just because it seemed like... Uh, it almost felt like a separate kind of movement. I don't know. I don't know why exactly. Maybe you guys can help me like pinpoint why. <laughs> I remember having an interesting moment with that because, you know, I think there are connections to be made between like us everyday people and then these high profile actresses, right? Of Which course, like, yeah. you know, do and I'm glad that they do like have a lot more resources right. to like pursue these accusations have and a platform to really privilege. be heard exactly which yeah. is like you know I'm glad they do 100% right. but the connection between their experiences and our experiences as everyday people hasn't really been made and I definitely would like to see us do that because it feels like a miss op- missed opportunity especially when you know, I've always said that like one thing so many of us have in common is that we're workers or mm-hmm. have been workers. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes we don't always realize that even people that are very wealthy, right, and have a celebrity status and have all these other forms of privilege can also be exploited workers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think we have this course. moment where we can make that connection and be like these women, despite having access to money, to fame, we're still exploited workers. And yeah. the systems That's of oppression are universal. <laughs> yeah. Like that it they are women high. just as we are. Yeah. yeah. And that the privileges that they have don't exempt them from those systems of oppression. They are just as vulnerable to that. Yeah. yeah they also have bosses and they also mm-hmm. have bosses that are men. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Predatory men. <laughs> yeah. Because not all men are predatory Hashtag Let it be men. said. Yes. <laughs> Very important. Very important to say that. I think it's important for us to, yeah, to realize the connections because even though, like, the experience of these actresses or musicians, rock stars, whatever, is maybe, you know, on a, a higher level because of their wealth and privilege and fame. It still, I feel like, boils down to the same power and control, that desire for power and control that people are exerting over them. You're, right, you're both right that like, making those connections hasn't been as explicit as it mm-hmm. could be. And I think Mohini made a great point with we're all workers. It's kind of like you think about just the trajectory of history and how long women have even been in the workforce in a public sphere, you know, Um, really you think world war two, like that Mm -hmm. wasn't really that long ago. And that that was when we had, you know, Rosie the Riveter, Mm -hmm. we can do it. Like women get out there and work while your husbands and brothers and fathers are off fighting. So I think, I think maybe that's why it's hard for us as women still to feel solidarity with other women, especially if they're not working in the same field as us. Because I think depending on where you work, if you're in healthcare, maybe you feel a certain connection to other women who also work in healthcare and actresses and people in Hollywood all kind of have their, it feels almost clicky, you know, but that's natural where humans are tribal animals, as they say. I think that's a, it's an important point to look at how long women have even been working mm-hmm. outside of home. No, like I, I totally, I totally see that and understand that. And what's also interesting too is that, like, you know, I think that's when a lot of 
around World War II is when a lot of like middle class and like especially like white women enter the workforce. But before that, what you had was a really big problem of immigrant women Mm -hmm. coming in and children and children as domestic workers. Mm-hmm. And you can only imagine <laughs> the abuse that that oh, also yeah. resulted in. Oh, you yeah. know, like these Rampant. women, they're care laborers. They're at other families' houses, mostly middle class or wealthy, you know, people's families, often white families, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking care of their children, taking care of their home. and Slave labor, effectively. E- exactly. For like really minuscule wages. And, and that kind of work environment was rampant with abuse. Right. And it continues to be. Today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm- yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember reading an article, I believe it was on The Guardian a few months ago. Some women who worked in like cleaning services mm-hmm. who they go into these buildings after everyone's gone pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. like they're janitors essentially. They are just almost like I hate to use the phrase like sitting ducks where their employer sees that they're alone. They're already, mm. you know, like in a position with no power whatsoever. They're vulnerable. They're very vulnerable. Right. I know my experience with sexual assault was at a time where I was very vulnerable. And looking back on it, like, of course, I was a target. Yeah, it's very obvious to me now. And, you know, there's part of me that like it's, it's so easy. Like victims always want to try and take back some of the control. So that's usually why victims blame themselves first. Like that's the automatic response for many people who have survived assault or trauma of sexual trauma of some sort. Um, Because it's a lot easier to feel like you could have done something differently. I could have been less vulnerable. I could have not been a target had I been less vulnerable. Then actually acknowledging the fact that like if somebody wants to do harm to you they will i think that there's really it's not worth going through life to try and make yourself not vulnerable ever because then how can you connect to other people but yeah anyway that's that's what i was just thinking about like these mm-hmm. these w- women who were like the janitorial staff and they're vulnerable for multiple reasons but predators seek out vulnerable targets right But then we also see people who you would think aren't as vulnerable and they also get to use the hashtag me too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Like when you look at actresses, what you don't realize is that like it's producers that control whether their films are even finished or ever hit the market. Like they're the ones with the money that control like their films. Like one thing that Harvey Mm -hmm. Weinstein would regularly do is like threaten to shut down Selma Hayek's films. Mm. Um, or yeah. say you'll never work in this town again. Like yeah, the absolutely classic line of like you. a Western villain. <laughs> yeah. And I think, Rachel, what you've expressed, I think, has been a very important like function of the Me Too movement, uh, which is provide a platform for women to finally like get validation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it's meant for a lot of people, like not just women, yeah. but like all survivors of like sexual assault and sexual trauma, but especially women, is that it finally like what people could put their voices out there and people were listening. Right. Right. Yeah. And people cared and people wanted to hear it. And suddenly we have this huge wake up call where like, you know, a lot of women have or- have always known that this is such a pervasive right. problem, but now it's actually being acknowledged on a very, like, public level. And it's been a yeah. long time, I feel like, since we've had a moment like that. 
Yeah. I mean, not in our lifetime. At least a few decades. Yeah. At the very least. And I think it's the first time that, like, survivors got a very, like, public and open platform to feel like they didn't have to blame themselves. Because there were people that were willing to listen and value those experiences. That's true. It reminds me of, like, early waves of feminism with, like, consciousness-raising groups and that scene, I don't know. I don't want to spoil The Handmaid's Tale for you guys if you haven't seen I've it. Read it. But it's a good I'm not going That's to watch it. <laughs> no, I won't watch it. I re- I've read it. That was it's enough. It's really good. It's really, really good. But there's a scene where like um, June's mom is like with a group of women who are writing their rapist name on a piece of paper and burning it in a barrel. And that's kind of like what Me Too is on a social media platform. Yeah. Where it's like, even if you don't call out the person, you know, specifically and say, you know, it was John, whatever, who did this to me. Like, Mm -hmm. you can still put your story out there in a way that makes it acknowledged and it makes, it lets other people know that they're not alone. It lets you know that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it was a very powerful thing, especially in those early weeks of Me Too. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of going back to what I said earlier, where it felt almost like our move, like our little people movement got co-opted by these famous people. But I guess for me, it was just not really seeing it as like a bigger thing for all of us. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what makes me too so complicated right now too, is that it's so all encompassing and it's almost gotten like kind of swept to the side at this point, I think at least like from those early weeks and months where it was a really big story and a big hashtag now I feel like it's gotten to where people aren't talking about it as much. And I mean, there's so much news every day. It's so I hard. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a tough part, too, that we're fighting on all fronts. And so to keep this in the forefront of everybody's mind when like this past week, you know, we had somebody who's retiring from the Supreme Court and all these oh. d- horrendous Supreme Court decisions are coming down the pipeline and. Yeah, everything that's going on with immigration and tearing children away from their families. Like, there's so much despair and destruction, and it's overwhelming. And so to to try and, yeah, maintain the momentum of this movement such that, or this movement that is mounting and hopefully, yeah, will coalesce to something with clear, identified, and cohesive goals right. is really important, but there's only so much energy and resources that we all have. I know that it's been a struggle, like, every every day. Like, I avoid the news. It's a struggle yeah. um, to maintain some sense of sanity in all this craziness and upheaval. But I feel like the solidarity building of this movement and the coalition building and and seeing ourselves as related to the experiences of people with a lot more wealth and power than we do, but who have experienced the same systemic abuses yeah, and patriarchy (laughs) that we have. And to not feel like we are separate and divisive, because I feel like that's just another way to allow the powers that be to win and to maintain the status quo is to feel separated from one another. Mm -hmm. And so I think the point about 
yeah, to, to break the isolation of this and to share our stories with one another and to help empower each other so that we don't feel isolated and alone. That's the most important aspect of what I think the founders of this movement, Tarana Burke and Alyssa Milano and all the other women that were early to share their stories, had hoped. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, at least for me, like also as a survivor, when Me Too really started picking up steam, it felt like a moment of hope for yeah. me. Like it very much represented hope. Like if we can open that door and start having these conversations and illustrate how pervasive and harrowing this problem is and like how diverse it is too, maybe we can also start trying to fix it. Like maybe yes. we can finally start fixing this and addressing this. And that's mm -hmm. very much what it represented for me and I think still does represent um, and I think it's so important to really focus on going in that direction, too, because a lot of my friends are also survivors. Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, you know, after a few months of, like, these Me Too statuses constantly coming up, one thing that I kind of felt and some of my friends felt was feeling really scared, you yeah. know? And, like, seeing, getting such a blatant illustration of how pervasive this problem was, you know, I think a lot of us went through this moment of feeling really down and out and yeah. like feeling like, who can you trust? Like, can you trust anyone? It seems like <laughs> no place is safe. And like, you know, I think a lot of us had this moment of difficulty in like, how do we take our grief and our anger and our trauma and turn it into power yeah. in a meaningful right. way? And like, you know, if we don't, I feel like create that vision for ourselves, then like we can't heal. Right. And it's like mm -hmm. only going to seem scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we should take a quick break. But I think after the break, focusing on how do we utilize all of this right. collective experience and yeah, how do we heal this grief as a collective? How can we support one another to transform the paradigm that we're living in to something that is empowering for all human beings? So we'll be right back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Rachel. I'm Mohini. Emily. And we've been talking about the Me Too movement and how that has manifested in the workplace and beyond. And we were talking about kind of the history of how Me Too got started. And now we wanted to kind of transition to the status quo and how are things currently? How have things been in our workplaces and how are they maybe changing for the better? So if I could start. Absolutely. Um, I have talked in previous episodes of Punching Out about working in a medical lab. I have since changed jobs. For I've, the better? Yeah. I Hooray. mean, I'm at a new job. I've been there Congrats. for about a month now. But I've had some experiences in my past jobs with some men <laughs> that weren't so great. Yeah. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. Mohini, I bet you can too. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had an experience 
two jobs ago where a supervisor and I started flirting. There were, you know, text messages. And I was dating someone at the time. I was in a long-term relationship. And it got weird. It became a thing. Some stuff happened. But he was my supervisor. And technically, that shouldn't have happened at all. Mm-hmm. It got strange. I mean, it it made... Work, uncomfortable it probably made work uncomfortable for yeah. sure especially because after it started and i was having a lot of relationship issues at the time with my boyfriend and he also was in a relationship at the time the supervisor have, yes having Ooh. issues with his girlfriend I so it was kind of just one of those things where it was like we were both unhappy and yeah. looking for Struggling. some attention you yeah know, sort of thing and after stuff happened i was like definitely not as into it anymore Mm -hmm. but he kept kind of pushing it a little bit Mm. and i felt i don't know that i ever felt as though he could i almost felt like i had more power over him at that point because i could get him in so much trouble for what Mm. he was doing but he could also like surreptitiously have you fired and not give any reason why correct I mean, yeah, he definitely could have done... Come up with some plausible reason. Right. But both of you know what the reason... Like, you know, a person scorned who has that power and control and ability to just have you let go. Yeah, it was strange. I don't know how to really... How to talk about it in the context of Me Too in a way, but it definitely relates to, like, workplace relationships and how... It gets weird sometimes. Yeah. And they happen <laughs> all the time. All the time. Like, I have some experience in academic backgrounds, and I feel like grad students and professors, like, that happens all the damn time. Yeah, and, like, TAs and their students or, like, the, just the power dynamics are all all sorts of messy. Right, I, and, I mean, it makes... It makes sense that things like that happen at work. I mean, mm-hmm. tons of people meet their spouses at work. Right. We spend a huge chunk of our time there. I feel like I spend all of my time at work, even yeah. though I'm only there 40 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> it's all of my time, but it's the majority basically. of your time. <laughs> like, yeah. So, and makes- as adults, it's also harder to meet peers. Like, now that we're not in school. Right. We meet peers generally at work. Like and even when you were a student, being in school yeah. is kind of your work. Yeah, in a absolutely. Way. Absolutely. Yeah. Shared experiences. <laughs> so moving on past that story of the supervisor, I started another job after that job where there was a coworker of mine who was very misogynistic and very insecure in his masculinity. Just a very insecure little man. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and... We hung out one night and stuff happened that I was not comfortable with, but Mm. I did not speak up against verbally. I just wanted it to end. And afterwards, he would act really mean to me at work, but like thinking that it was like playful, but I was like getting really bothered by it. And it wasn't until after that happened and I spoke like with my counselor about what happened where she was like, that sounds... Like, it wasn't consensual. I'm like, no. yeah, you're probably right. It wasn't really yeah. at the time. I was very drunk. And mm. then he yeah. just kind of took advantage of that situation in a way that was Was he not drunk? He was also drunk. Mm. Yeah. I've had some weird experiences with coworkers 
yeah. too. Yeah, and it can change the entire tone and climate of your job. Like it can make it really hard for you to get whatever you need to do done day to day. And the dread and of seeing that person, like, yeah, in my own experience, I was raped by a student who I thought I was very good friends with. And so, like you said, school was my work at the time. And I had known this person for years. I thought we were very close friends. But yeah, apparently he was a predator and this was not an isolated incident. I found out later that his pattern of behavior is to manipulate people and to get what he wants regardless of their desires. And, you know, afterwards, he would kind of like stalk my roots on campus and, you know, he, he tried to approach me a few times, but mostly just like this menacing gaze. And so I ended up having to leave because I couldn't go anywhere without just that dread of like knowing that he was going to be there and what would he do? And like, I didn't feel safe anywhere. And if you're at work and you encounter this person over and over again and their, their conduct is less than super, shall we say, like, how are you supposed to continue? Like, how can mm -hmm. you really focus on what you're there to do when you don't feel safe, you don't feel comfortable? It's and there are no avenues to get it addressed. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a constructive way, in a way that, like, respects what, like, someone wants and, like, has appropriate consequences and, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. You know, I think that's where Me Too gets really complicated because I think on the one hand, it's provided just this amazing platform for people to be heard and actually yeah. bring this issue like into the spotlight, which I think is incredible. But a lot of it is also, I think, happened through social media mm -hmm. and on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, which are not, in my perspective, platforms that do the complexity and the nuances mm -hmm. and the diversity of experiences and issues justice. I don't think they right. can. They're good at connecting people rapidly, but so much gets lost in translation. It's exactly. Kind of, yeah, it's like a text message where you yeah. think someone is saying something rude to you when they're like, oh, it was just like a joke, but it's a text message. It's kind of the same with like mm. stories like that. Right. And the differences that, you know, Emily, you were talking about in your experience where like, you know, the experience with the supervisor was a little bit like it wasn't good, but it was kind of complicated. And then there was this other person that you worked with where it was very clearly not good. Yeah. <laughs> and like... I feel like a lot of women have mixed experiences like that. I bartended for a very long time. There were power dynamics there at work that actually had nothing to do with the people I was working with, but it had mm -hmm. to do with the people I was serving. Yeah. Where a lot of people, especially men, felt entitled to comment on your appearance, to hit on you, to touch your hand, to grab you, to give mm -hmm. you their phone number, to ask for yours. Yeah. And it's a very difficult dynamic to deal with because everybody who's in the service industry and is a tipped worker knows that you make all your money in tips because you're only paid seven fifty an hour from your boss. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky. If yeah. yeah, if you're lucky, you know, like there's rampant wage theft in the service industry. Like, you know, restaurants, as far as my experience goes in them and my friend's experience goes in them are like, you know, the Wild West. Like yeah. labor laws just don't seem to apply in the restaurant industry and they're certainly not enforced. You know, for me, I experienced that as a very abusive dynamic where I often felt like I couldn't respond to these advances or handle these advances the way I wanted to, not because my supervisor wouldn't stand 
stand up for me or my coworkers wouldn't stand up for me. It wasn't about that. It was about the fact that I can stand up for myself. Someone else can stand up for myself. And maybe that means I can't pay rent that month. Right. Your livelihood is at stake. Absolutely. And that's mm-hmm. how I felt. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there were women I worked with that loved that dynamic. Really? Yeah, that like to work it, that were fine with it. They were just like, I can maintain my boundaries. I'm fine with this. Like, you know, it is what it is. And they they recognized how the structure and the structure of the relationship allowed for abuse Mm -hmm. and was incredibly conducive to abuse. And they recognized that. But at the same time, we're just like, it's just not how I'm experiencing it, though. Mm -hmm. And it's differences like that that like I think Me Too has really struggled to handle because... I've also experienced the flip side of this. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that, like, you know, my current partner w- was my supervisor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought that was a deeply consensual, deeply respectful relationship mm-hmm. always. And, like, we had very frank conversations on, like, what it means for, like, me to get hired at the organization that I work for now and be someone that's dating him mm-hmm. um, and that he's supervising and what structures we could put in place in the organization to keep an eye on that, yeah. to give me other people to go to if I have any complaints or I feel like I'm struggling. And, you know, it was very out in the open. We made sure everyone in the organization knew what was going on. And I never felt that the power dynamic there was an abusive one. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. certainly could have been. Yeah, He had the position of power to abuse it. Right. Um, But there were other checks put in place and I didn't experience it that way. Right. There are other people I've known that have had relationships with their TA. Mm -hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. 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 Like with their graduate advisor, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. My very best friend. Her dad was a professor to her mom. Mm Mm-hmm. And they got married. I had a ben professor hookup once. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it happens all the time. So so there's no way that we can like just put a blanket legislation out there like exactly. no power differences can we can't abolish all workplace relationships where there's a power difference. Right, because like, I think we're all together. Because yeah. sometimes it's you're on the same level at work and right. things get complicated. Like my the, my second story that I shared, that guy and I were the same level. We had the same yeah. title. But patriarchy still exists. But he was he was not a great person. He has yeah. some insecurities. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Some issues. Himself. And I think, you know, the question is so much less that like, is there always an abuse of power? Is there always a power dynamic? Is this just inappropriate? Should this person have known better because they're older or they're in a position of power? Should they have known better? Right. I think a lot of times some women experience that answer to be yes. Mm -hmm. Like I had a relationship with an older man or a man that was in a position of power over me. And I think he should have known better. Other women are like, I think it was more complicated than that. And I think the question is much less so like, is it? Is the only possibility that it's an abusive dynamic? No. I think what the question really should be is like, how do we put in tools and processes to make Mm -hmm. sure it isn't? Right. And like, how do we deal with that? And how do we respect people's agencies Mm -hmm. in the situation? Empower people to be comfortable in whatever situation they're in and know that they're safe and that they have ways to deal with anything that might arise. But then I think what complicates that, and I think what a lot of people have found complicating about Me Too, is that how do we believe everyone? Yes. How do we believe a woman who says, I had this terrible experience, Mm -hmm. and also the guy who says, no, it didn't happen that way? Because in a lot of cases, they were the only two people there. Right. So I think that's what makes Me Too kind of difficult for a lot of people to understand. 
And it makes it difficult for a lot of those gray areas like at work. Because how do you how do you believe two people if they're telling a different story? Right. And what do you do with that? Right. How do you act on those kinds of contradictions? I think for a lot of insecure men (laughs) who have like spoken out against me too, who who have Mm -hmm. made jokes of, well, how am I ever going to ask a woman out again? They all think I'm harassing them sort of thing. And I've I've heard that a lot. I don't know about you guys. Oh, absolutely. I've seen that in a lot of places. Well, I've also heard it not even sarcastically, but genuinely like feeling like, I don't want to be part of the problem. What can I do to reform my behavior? This is always what I've been taught. And I see now that I am culpable and I don't want to continue causing harm inadvertently. Mm-hmm. But Which is how good. should I conduct myself? Yeah. Right. That's the that's the good scenario. Yes. But then there's the bad scenario of people yeah. who are like, well, all these women are going to say that I harass them because I asked them for their phone number or you know, they... It's almost like they write off the whole movement as nonsense and like, yeah, they're all exaggerating these things because it makes them uncomfortable to have to question their own behaviors and their own complicity with Mm -hmm. their believies. I call them (laughs) believies. You know, anything that we hold dear at the expense of like rational evidence. That's a good word. Believies. Believies. Feel free to to use it. Stealing that one. (laughs) (laughs) I just gave it to you. You don't even need to steal it. We've been talking about this a lot, Mohini and I, about like due process and the need for restorative justice, which is maybe getting ahead of ourselves because we were hoping to get to that later. But I think, Emily, you bring up such an important point where like if we're basically exchanging like so many times, like in my own case, I went to the counseling office at my university and I told them everything that had happened. And in all honesty, she she took me aside and said, listen, in cases of what we generally call date rape like somebody that you know it's not a cut and dry thing like there's so much gray area and you didn't go immediately afterwards and get tested and you know get a rape kit or whatever and I feel like the vast majority of women who experience that sort of thing they're not going to do that and she said it's your word against his and you know in the court system it's his word against yours and the system isn't set up to support our voices and there's really no evidence other than verbal mm-hmm. um, because, like you said, nobody else was there. So how do we transform the system to be one in which there is justice, true justice? And I honestly, I've been racking my brain trying to think about that because I feel like overall our system currently, our criminal quote unquote justice system, I'm doing air quotes, I wish you could see that, but there's no justice in it. And there's no gray area either. It's no. a system that rests on black and white interpretations of what happened to deal out a consequence. Right. And the consequences are always punitive and harsh. And they're or not, not. or Yeah, or not. Or okay. complete lack thereof. But they aren't about transforming behavior. They aren't about restorative practices. They aren't about helping somebody to internalize what they need to do differently. And they aren't about supporting what we need to happen instead. Because people make mistakes. We're human. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable. We're going to mess up. Right. And it goes both ways, too, which I think a lot of men get sensitive about. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I've been harassed, which, of 
course you have. Yeah. We all have because yeah. our culture doesn't teach people what consent is. It doesn't right. teach people what respect is at a most basic yeah. level. It's all about transactional relationships instead of connection and mm-hmm. community. Like I feel like capitalism is a big part of the problem mm-hmm. because it's focusing on transaction. What what will you give me? What mm-hmm. what will I get in exchange? And, and I almost think in a lot of ways for a lot of women, we try to take all of that discomfort at being sexualized and objectified and flip it around back onto men. Like you Mm -hmm. look at like, I don't know, Magic Mike, is that what it's called? Like Mm -hmm. all those movies and like, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time and it certainly is not the same because there's not the same power of women over men. Right. Um, But it's still the gaze. It's almost, yeah, yeah, it's the gaze, exactly. (laughs) Um, Where we like, oh man, look at that guy's... Objectification, yeah. whatever. Yeah. (laughs) All his... Shiny, oily bits. Mm, Yeah. Gyrating. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is, both of you have talked about, you know, all this gray area that exists that I feel like social media is, as a platform, really exhibits a lot of difficulty in addressing because, you know, Emily, what you were saying was that, like, there's only two people there often. Yeah. And they both have their own subjective experiences. So how do you figure out accountability and justice? Mm Mm-hmm in validating subjective experiences, like recognizing them as subjective and then figuring out how to validate them still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what isn't always understood or talked about um, in as much depth and with as some and with as much exposure as I think it deserves is the fact that like someone can experience sexual harassment or sexual assault in a way that is traumatizing Mm -hmm. that in a way that like is incredibly damaging Mm -hmm. and yet at the same time recognize that there are no clear malicious villains involved right Right. and that is not a nuanced understanding that I think Me Too at this time has been able to like really push to the front. That is a great point. (laughs) And like what, and what I mean by that really is that like most of, you know, the sexual assault that I experienced were by people that like were very clearly transgressing boundaries that I had stated were Mm -hmm. absolutely abusing their power and use their power to have impunity. Mm -hmm. But I've also known a lot of women where it wasn't where it wasn't that clear cut things like, you know, I was kind of flirting with this guy and like we ended up going home and having sex and I wasn't really sure that I wanted to, but I felt like I'd been flirting with him the whole night. So I kind of just should. There was no affirmative consent there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of women in these experiences feel like, oh, well, you know, might as well like. And then That's men are kind of how my story felt like yeah. it wasn't until afterwards where I was like, yeah, that really wasn't OK what he did. Mm-hmm. But at the time it was like, you know, like, I'll just go with it and hopefully this will be over soon, like type of thing. Yeah. And like you, you somehow owe it to him because there's some unspoken agreement that flirtation equals yeah, or just, yeah. like, it almost seemed easier to just let it happen than to, like, to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be, like, I don't know, I guess I kind of cared how he perceived me if I were to tell him, like, absolutely not, this is not happening sort of thing. Well, and also, the, what's interesting about it to me, looking back, because that was about a year ago now, mm-hmm. um, I I don't really hold anything against him. And, like, I mentioned when I first started telling the story that he's an insecure little man with his little his little masculinity it's very fragile Mm -hmm. um (laughs) and 
I consider him like a, a decent friend of mine mm-hmm. now and I've like moved mm-hmm. past it and it's strange. Like you were saying, there's not enough nuance in the Me Too movement to address like sometimes these awful things happen, but the person isn't really a terrible person just because right. this awful thing happened. Like bad communication, poor judgment. Right. All like all mm-hmm. of that is not the same thing as like intentional Evil. malicious intent and in making someone a monster. Yeah. Right. Some creeper in the bushes who jumps out at you type right. of story. Right. And I I can totally relate to that because like in my own experience, I had a lot of difficulty reconciling the good things that I knew about this person who I had known for years and all of the positive memories that I had of time with that person. Like how do you reconcile that with so much harm and damage that they've caused? I don't believe that anybody is inherently evil, but I believe that people can do evil things to one another and that they can damage each other and cause, you know, insane amounts of harm deliberately or not. But that doesn't make them evil through and through. Like we're all human Unless beings. Unless they're Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> I, Sorry, I, think I just we're had to throw that, that in. <laughs> I think what we're getting at no. is that there's this spectrum, right, that isn't yes. being acknowledged. Like yes. there is bad communication and men that aren't taught up to pick up on the signals of a woman being stiff, a woman not really being into it. Right. Like, um, like men aren't taught to pick up on those signals and women aren't taught or made to feel safe communicating directly. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and that gets really complicated. And then there's like other issues of like, you know, alcohol, drunkenness and sex where it's like a lot of people's boundaries on that are really different Mm -hmm. how do you assess those boundaries and communicate those boundaries communicate while you're intoxicated too yeah because i had a friend that was like liked getting drunk and like had sex with another guy that was also really drunk and was like into it at the time and then he did ask her a bunch of questions like like, are you sure you still want to do this and you know etc etc and the answer was yes um and then the morning after she was just like i was too drunk for that Mm. and he was also quite drunk and you know, it was just like, yeah, that's another one of those situations where it's like, how, who do you, how do you <laughs> yeah. like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. And then I also know women who straight up told me she was like, if a guy kept asking me if I was like good to have sex and if he like was just like, I'm not going to do this. Like, I think you're too drunk. I'd be pissed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's like, so it, much variation. Each of us here has talked about strictly heterosexual encounters too so then it's hard for us to i guess talk about like you know same-sex encounters if we haven't had them but that makes me question like where the socialization comes in if it's two men or two women you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because everything it gets so complicated again like there's just there's so much there's so many types of relationships and there's so many types of experiences so how does me too only belong to straight women no of course not but do we also let gay men use it too like i don't know (laughs) is that a question that people are talking about i don't know (laughs) well now we are talking about it and actually i think we need to take another break but i think after the break we should talk about where do we want to steer this movement i think that's actually a really good segue emily to start planting seeds of the questions that we would like to answer and how inclusive do we want this movement to be and what goals would we like to move towards Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. 
And we are back. This is Emily. Mohini. I'm Rachel. Uh, We were just talking about the ways that Me Too could encompass more. How do we invite everyone into this without making this too big? How do we talk about sex, sexuality, and gender in relationship to Me Too and in relationship to harassment at work and in relationship to harassment outside of work? Mm -hmm. How do we parse this up but also keep it all together? Yeah. How do we utilize it as a solidarity building exercise to build our future-oriented movement? And then in what ways do we define consequences? Mm -hmm. Because we had talked a little bit during our break about how there are differences in experiences, of course, and there are differences in people's perception of certain experiences. Mm -hmm. And I brought up the example of a woman at work who her butt gets grabbed might view that as um, a life-changing experience where her autonomy was violated and she's never had that happen before and maybe it causes a lot of psychological distress for her. Whereas another woman might have that happen 10, 15 times a day in her line of work and think that's no big deal. Why are you associating this with me too? Mm-hmm. And how do we validate everyone's perception of what happens to them as, yes, you've been violated and how do we address this? How do we fix it? How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Yeah. And how do we empower people's subjective experiences without disempowering other people? Mm-hmm. How do we answer any of these questions, guys? Come on. <laughs> yeah. We're waiting. We're waiting for responses. <laughs> you know, I think, I, I think something that I've been thinking about a lot that is how like I would really like to participate in Me Too moving forward is that like I'd really like to construct and implement solutions in like two different spheres. The first sphere to me is education Mm -hmm. and the second sphere for me is actually creating a process of justice Mm -hmm. that isn't just punitive or based on retribution but actually allows for healing, allows for fair accountability and allows for actually dismantling patriarchy Mm -hmm. and changing the fact that like any of this is happening at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Getting to the roots of the problem and not just treating the surface symptoms. Exactly. And when it yes. comes, to- yes, <laughs> yes, I, I think love when it. it comes to education, you know, our school system just fails people. Mm-hmm. It's like failing kids when it comes to like sex positive education and, yeah, and consent. And I absolutely. feel like that can start at the absolute earliest ages with like unwanted touch. Mm-hmm. Like, why aren't we talking about it from square one? Mm-hmm. Like consent can be understandable at every single level. And I think we have to recognize that by the time a lot of people are in high school, mm-hmm. like they're having sexual experiences. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You oh, know, way like, before then. I mean, yeah, even before that, right? Yeah. So, then. and if we wait until then, it's too late. Exactly. And to me, there is no reason for people to be able to get through high school, even, you know, even middle school. Like there's no reason you should be able to get through middle school and high school without in your classrooms with your peers having conversations about like what is sex what is sexual consent how do you Mm -hmm. explore your own body and determine your own boundaries and Mm -hmm. how do you communicate that how do you gauge someone else's Mm -hmm. boundaries
boundaries. Like right. we need to have these conversations. Like how do you understand your sexuality, your gender, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. And we need to start talking about those things at a very young age and like give people right. those tools. And it's right. definitely super important in schools, like you said, but also parenting. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, I've there's the example of like have your toddler with you when you go to a family picnic and your great uncle is, says, give me a kiss. And your toddler doesn't want to because right. she doesn't know who this person is. And you say, give him a kiss. Like, mm-hmm. But she doesn't want to. So, right. <laughs> And that's what I was talking about. Consent doesn't always have to be about sexuality. It can be like when I mentioned unwanted touch, talking about that from the earliest, earliest stages. I think like I used to be a nanny and I took care of these two little kids. And, you know, one was always, you know, poking the other or whatever. But at the time, I was too young to say, hey, if you are violating someone's personal space when they do not want to be touched, you must keep your hands to yourself and be respectful of that person's boundaries in their personal space. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't think about it in those terms. And I'm not entirely sure what I did every time that happened because it happened a lot. And I feel like kids are constantly violating each other's personal space boundaries. I remember my sister and I, you know, we would like draw an imaginary line. This is my side. That's your side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was always about pushing that. Yeah. (laughs) It was always about like how close to the line can you get without crossing it, which like if that's our paradigm, if that's kind of (laughs) symbolic of the greater picture, that's really messed up. And I I apologize to her. I'm very sorry because I'm the (laughs) oldest and I should know better. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we're all within these like oppressive systems. And so even well-meaning, considerate people are bound to mess up because that's the status Mm -hmm. quo that we're fighting against. I really had to learn to like ask people if they wanted to be hugged. Yeah. I'm I'm still working on that. Yeah. Like playful, like touchy-feely person. Like that's Mm -hmm. how I show affection and enthusiasm. And like a few people who are not huggers Mm -hmm. and who really have big personal space bubbles like had to tell me and be like, you know, I'm not really into that. Yeah. Um, And I feel that... Please don't force me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's hard for a lot of people is to have someone say that to you and then to go well you're just what's wrong with you or they take it as like a slight against them rather than oh you're right I should have asked you first before I just randomly touched you without permission you Mm -hmm. know and it exists in a lot of people and it starts young like we were saying with with kids in school and poking each other Mm -hmm. and I've seen that too my my niece plays t-ball and I went to a t-ball game and there's these twin brothers just shoving each other back and forth and back and forth and it's like that's a teaching moment yeah and it's always going to be a teaching moment but sometimes parents and and even teachers they miss those teaching moments right and we're kind of like oh kids will be kids Mm -hmm. but those are missed opportunities or boys will be boys yeah yeah that's the the famous one yeah and i think it takes away their agency too Mm -hmm. you know that they don't have control over themselves that's basically the underlying assumption is that they cannot control themselves because kids will be kids, boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. This is just what they do. Forgive them their trespasses. You know, that's not allowing boys to have agency. That's not allowing children to have agency. And so we assume that they are incapable of that, which is unfair, totally unfair. Yeah. I think a lot of people underestimate children. Mm-hmm. And whenever I'm around children, now that I'm 25 and I understand that I'm not a child anymore, mm-hmm. <laughs> I see I see those things yeah. where people underestimate kids. It's like all the time. Why 
Why do you think that they aren't smart enough to, I mean, they're sponges. They're learning all the time. And so when you have a moment like that where one of them's touching another one that doesn't want to be touched, it's up to us as the adults to be like, hey, look, you know, you shouldn't touch people that don't want to be touched. (laughs) Yeah. And I think widespread consent training across the board would be Mm -hmm. marvelous. (laughs) And it goes way past kids, too. I mean, Uh, yes. In, and we go back to like workplaces. Maybe you have like an older coworker who tends to put their hand on your shoulder when you they tell you you did a good job or something like that. And how do you teach that person? You should not touch people <laughs> unless they give you permission. It's hard. There's yeah. this amazing um, article that I'm probably going to mess up her name, but I think it's Aya de Leon. And she's this woman of color that wrote this really amazing piece called Reconciling Rage and Compassion, Mm -hmm. the unfolding of Me Too moment for Juno Diaz. And mm. I don't know how many you know people know who Juno Diaz is, but he's this really celebrated Caribbean writer. Um, is a writer whose work I've really loved. And basically, what she was talking about is that combating sexual harassment and sexual assault and dismantling patriarchy—all of this calls for both men and women Absolutely. and people of all genders reclaiming their humanity. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that unless we look at each other as human beings Mm -hmm. and as people that are flawed, that have been conditioned by these systems. And basically what she was saying, and like I think similarly as well, is that these systems that we are all ingrained by, right? And any mixture of like life experience and trauma in the institutions Mm -hmm. around us will lead very good people to do really terrible things. And at the end of the day, we're on this planet together we have Mm -hmm. both created these systems and lived in these systems so it is our responsibility to face each other Mm -hmm. and reform each other not discard each other yes Mm -hmm. Um, not isolate each other not alienate one another and yeah push one another out entirely and i think that leads to our point that we also talked about while we took a break which is that this conversation could go on for at least a whole nother episode which we Um, were thinking that maybe we should do where we could maybe talk about what it means to be vulnerable and how that relates to movements like Me Too. And Mm -hmm. we actually had a little conversation about, you know, older views of feminism and Mm -hmm. how previous uh, movements have focused a lot on agency and independence and being strong. And how do we now reconcile accepting vulnerability as part of accepting that strength? you can be strong, you know? It's a whole nother whole nother ball game we might yeah. get into and i think also looking deeper into the changes we want to see in the future and how to position ourselves how to steer this this burgeoning movement towards those changes such that we can shift the paradigm that we've got into one that we want that is affirming for all human beings I think that's a pretty good good place to end, actually. Yeah. And for the time being. Been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you all for being here. Yes. And sharing your stories. Mm-hmm. It's really helpful. It's healing, for me at least. Yes. It's definitely nice. And I hope to all of you out there that it is similarly healing and there's only more to come. Yes. I'm really looking forward to part two. <laughs> me too. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. 
Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.